Our scripture passage for today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, what would that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body was, were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need for you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer as we ask for God to bless his word. Father, we ask now that you would minister to us through the preaching of the word the means of grace that you have given to your church so that we would find the hope that we need in the truth that is spoken. Father, without you, where would we be? We would be so lost in our own passions. We would be so misguided by the wisdom of man, and we would be so harmful to ourselves and the people that we love and care for. God, it is only through your word that gives us the guiding light that we need so that we can travail in this darkened world and live a life of hope and of purpose and of peace. And so, God, we pray that as we continue our trek to our true homeland, the place that we call the kingdom of our Father in heaven, that we would rely upon this word to guide us and to lead us, to comfort us, to feed us, so that our affections and desires would be directed to its true and common goal, which is our Father in heaven, his beloved Son, and the wonderful, beloved Spirit of God who dwells within us. God, would you now minister to us and speak in spite of the one who speaks as your messenger, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Life has taught us that anything that was meant for good could be used for evil. Again, life has taught us that anything that was meant for good could be used for evil. Let me give you a couple of examples. Technology has done some wonderful good for mankind. It has elevated the living conditions of society. It has provided countless jobs for the economy. And yet we also know technology has done a lot of harm and hurt to mankind. Case in point, did you know that there exists a technology that can wipe out the entire human race with just the push of one button? It's true. Technology, which could be used for good, so often is used for bad. Another example is money. Of course money can do some good. It can bring development into the third world. It can motivate people to live industrious lives. And yet so often this thing that could be used for good is so often used for bad. 
where people purchase questionable items, where people pay for questionable services, where people try to get more of it through questionable means. So often money that could be used for good is so often used for bad. And then, of course, there's education. Education, which is so good for people because it increases doors of opportunities for them to go through, for people for able to better provide for their families. And yet so often, education is weaponized where knowledge is used as power to oppress those who cannot have access to the education that could free them of opportunities. So often, we witness things that could be used for the good of man is more often used that unleashes the evil that is in man. And one particular thing that fits this description, shockingly and sadly, are the ministries Christians provide to the church One recurring thing that could be used for good but is so often used for evil are the various ministries that Christians provide in the church. It's true. What do I mean? Well, first let me explain. We're continuing our sermon series, METS, M-E-T-S, which stands for Members Equipped to Serve. And the whole point of this series is to look at the five crucial core ministries God calls every Christian to be a minister of. Today we look at the third of the five, which is our ministry to the church, the ministries that Christians provide to the church. The Bible tells us that God has given every Christian a spiritual gift. Why? So that we can use that spiritual gift to create ministries that bless, that encourage, that edify, that bring good to the church. And yet so often, many Christians will use their ministry to harm and to hurt the church because they're driven by motivational forces in their hearts that are so wicked, so wretched, ruminating in their hearts. And because our church is not immune to that kind of danger, we need to consider this topic for today. After all, what other choice do we have? It's not like we can opt out of not needing your ministry ministries to the church, just like none of us in here can opt out of using money, technology, and education to live our lives. So also for this church to continue on and to thrive, we need your ministry, Christian, for this church for us to thrive as well. And so let's consider what the Apostle Paul has to say on this matter in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 26, because as we study this text, we're going to see three driving forces that shape and make the ministries of the church good for the church and not harmful to the church. And what are those three forces? They are as follows. Number one, the primary force of unity. Number two, the secondary force of love. And number three, the originating force of the gospel. The three driving and shaping forces that make ministries of the church good for the church and not bad are the force of unity, the force of love, and finally, the force of the gospel. Let's begin with the first one, the primary force of unity. Let's skip down to the very bottom of our passage where in verse 25, it says this, that there may be no divisions in the body. Here, the apostle Paul identifies the first and really the primary force that is needed for the ministry of the church to be good and not bad. What is that? There must be no divisions in the body. In other words, in order for a church to have ministries that are actually healthy and vibrant and good for the overall community, it must be united. It must have unity. And this is something the Apostle Paul repeatedly states throughout this throughout the the passage that we're looking at. In fact, earlier on, he says this in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greek, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul repeatedly states that if you ever come across a church where their ministry is doing well and it's good for the church, you better assume that it's because there is unity in that church. The reason why a church has a vibrant ministry life is because there is unity in that 
church. Now, before I go any further, I want to make sure you don't misunderstand what Paul means when he uses this word unity. Because by employing that word, he is not saying the kind of unity where everyone looks the same, thinks the same, believes, you know, similar things. Well, actually, they do have to believe in similar things, actually. But they don't look the same. They don't think the same. They're not passionate about similar things, same political leanings. In other words, when he says unity, he does not mean uniformity. Uniformity. How do I know? Because look at the types of people that he writes of who make up this church that he's writing to. Verse 13, Jews, Greeks, slaves, and free. This church is diverse. There's a quite variety of different kinds of people that make up this body, and God would have it no other way. God wants his body to be not homogenous, but be filled with so much different kinds of people, different stages of life, different ages, different uh, interests, different passions. Why? Because God wants to make a certain point across that we need to understand. And that is, if there's going to be unity in his church, it cannot be because everyone is the same or identical to each other. No. If there is to be unity in the body of Christ, it's because of a unifying force that overcomes the natural tendency for people to separate and segregate themselves from people who are different from them. Now, you hear that, and you might be wondering, what kind of unifying force is capable of such a feat? Well, consider this answer from Dr. Tony Evans. I think he hits the nail on the head when he says this, quote, Unity in Christ is possible because we are united around him, bowing to his lordship and obeying his commands. True unity is finding oneness of purpose and commitment, moving toward a common goal despite our differences. Unity doesn't require that we all be the same, same race, same politics, same economic status, but that we all head in the same direction, end quote. When the members of the church are united with the common priority of loving Christ, obeying Christ, and serving Christ, then you have what it takes to create ministries that are well Good for the church, where it doesn't require for other people to look like you, be the same age as you, have the same interests as you, for you to minister to them. No, you have what you need to be able to serve and build a unity that brings health and vibrancy through the ministry that is created out of that commitment to Christ. Now, let me ask you this question. What do you think happens to a church where they come together and they're united, not around Christ, but something else? What happens to a church if the reason why they're together is because they love something and want to serve something else other than Christ? What kind of church do you end up with? You end up with the one that Paul refers to in verses 14 to 20. Listen to what it says. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, do not belong to the body, and that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would there be a sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would be the body? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Paul shows us what happens when Christ is not the reason why people come together in the church. You have a mindset that says, we all have to be alike. We all need to be ears. We all need to be eyes. We all need to be noses or mouth. Or to put it in our modern way, we all need to be Asians. We all need to be single. We all need to be families. We all need to be Republicans. We all need to be Democrats, right? What is that? That is uniformity. And when a church centers on being uniform rather than being united around Christ, what do you end up having? You have end up having a very unstable and therefore unbalanced and therefore unhealthy 
ministry because it is so lopsided, it is so one-dimensional and shallow that it cannot handle the kind of pressures that God calls the church to endure to be a living witness to the world. Let me give you a couple of examples. There are some churches out there that center on and unify around certain things like spiritual gifts, specifically speaking of tongues. Some churches, all they care about and all they're concerned with is whether or not you can speak in tongues, whether you can interpret tongues. Hey, did you get the second blessing? Did you pray for the second blessing of the Spirit of God? Hey, can you speak in tongues? Can you interpret tongues? No? I don't know if this is your church then. I remember when I was in college, I was heavily involved with a very charismatic ministry because I had a charismatic phase in my Christian life. I used to be able to fake speaking in tongues. I'll, I'll show you sometime if you want to come over. But, um, but that's what I was resorted to do because I was given this message. If you want to be a part of this ministry, if you want to have an opportunity to serve, if you want to be considered as someone who can be received and welcome, then you better start mumbling those words. You better start speaking that Holy Ghost language is what they would say. right? And people, I remember going to prayer meetings, people who could not do it would be crying tears. Even though they believe the gospel, even though they believe that says, yes, I'm a Christian, yet they acted as if they were second-class citizens, and the leadership of the church made sure they felt it, right? Another thing that churches centered on and unify on is music ministry. Certain churches are all about the praise and the worship, where all they care about is the choir. All they care about is the praise team. If you don't have a musical bone in your body, if you don't have a natural interest in music, if you are not willing to serve the ministry of music of a church, good luck fitting in, right? Because if you can't contribute to what the church is all about, then why are you even there? Certain churches make music such a focus that it takes preeminence over their devotion to Christ. Other churches unify around cell groups. Cell group this, cell group that. Hey, you want to start a cell group? You want to lead a cell group? It's time to multiply your cell group. Cell group is everything for certain churches to where if you're not a part of a cell group, then you're not even considered a true believer. Other churches center on and unify around evangelism, where all the thing the church cares about is just sharing your faith, uh, proclaiming the gospel, inviting your non-Christian co-workers, friends, and neighbors to church. And this is all that the church is about, just sharing one's faith and go about displaying the work of Jesus. Now, one particular church that lived out this philosophy for many decades is Willow Creek Community up in Chicago. You guys heard of them, Willow Creek Community? For decades, all they cared about was just doing evangelism to the point that they stopped offering Sunday worship services. You heard me right. They stopped offering Sunday worship services. They, for decades, disobeyed the fourth commandment, right? Why? Because Sunday, oh, that's for our non-Christian neighbors and friends. You know, Sundays is going to be for concerts, workshops, seminars for them because Sunday is non-Christian day. I don't know about you, but I always was taught that Sunday is the Lord's day. And therefore, that day should be dedicated to the one it's named after, where he gets his rightful due of praise and worship and adoration from his people. After many years of doing this, a pastor on this church who was on the upper echelon of senior leadership made this startling confession. He said this, quote, we made a big mistake. Some of the stuff that we have put millions of dollars into, thinking it would really help our people grow and develop spiritually, when the data actually came back, it wasn't helping people that much. Other things that we didn't put that much money into and didn't put much staff against is stuff our people were crying out for, namely Sunday worship. End quote. As I read these words, it dawned on me. If a church unifies around something aside from Christ, even if that something is of spiritual nature, like a spiritual gift, a spiritual command, right, or a spiritual principle, 
you will not have a healthy, vibrant church because you have a church that is very lopsided. It is homogenous. It is no variety, no diversity, because the people that make up this community are singularly minded to a lopsided idea. The first and foremost thing that should drive the ministries of our church is our core priority of Christ and Christ alone, loving Christ, obeying Christ, serving Christ. Got it? Let's move on to the second point, the secondary force of love. Read again the middle of verse 25 and 26. That the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here Paul tells us one of the beautiful consequences of what happens when a church is united around Christ and Christ alone. The members are so connected. They're so bonded together in such a way that if a member of the church is suffering, the whole church feels as if it's suffering. Conversely, if a church member is doing well and they're celebrating, it's as if the whole church can celebrate. What am I talking about, folks? I'm talking about empathy. Empathy. Now, what is empathy? Empathy is that unique experience that you have when you're part of a very close-knit, loving family. Think about the various people that are in your lives as I ask this question. Who are the people in your lives to where if they fail miserably, you feel like you've personally failed as well? Or if a person in your life does something great and achieves a great thing, you feel like you've just won that great achievement. You just succeeded the way they have. Who are those people usually that make you feel that way? Isn't it usually your own family? Mom, dad, brother, sister, son, daughter, right? Isn't usually our family to where we feel this sense of empathy with? Case in point, a few years ago, my first son, when he was in first grade, picked him up from school. And as we're walking home, he proceeds to tell me that a classmate of his was bullying him. Yeah, throwing his crayons on the floor, pushing him to the ground, even spitting at him. And as my son is telling me this, I feel my fists balling up like this. I feel my face getting hot. I feel my breathing getting harder. What's happening? I'm empathizing with my son, who I felt like that little punk was bullying me, right? That is what happens when you love someone so much, as in family, to where you identify their highs and their lows, their good and their bad, their bliss and their sorrows. That's empathy. Now, you might be wondering, what does any of this have to do with the ministry that we give to the church? It's simple. Paul says, Christian, when you do your ministry to the church, you must do so with the mindset that the people you're serving through your ministry are your family. Let me say it again. Paul says that when you do ministry in the church, the attitude you must have is that you see the people you serve through your ministry as family. Not a stranger you happen to go to church with, not an acquaintance to where your kids and their kids go to the same you know, youth program too. No, but you see them as family, which means when you do ministry for the church, you don't have this attitude like you're doing the church favors or you're going out of your way to where we need to say, oh, thank you for just really doing us favors here by just really serving us. No. The mindset you should have when you do ministry in the church is the same mindset you have when you fulfill your obligations to your family. It is a duty. It is a responsibility. And therefore, you just do it. Yeah. And yet what's so sad is so many Christians do not have this mindset as they serve the church. Instead, they have the mindset that Paul speaks of in verse 21 where he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Apparently, there were some people in this church who saw their ministry the way a business guru sees his business in relation to companies he hires out. Let me explain. Imagine you're the CEO of a business, a thriving business, but you also hire outside companies to give you goods and services so that you can run your business well. 
But let's say one of these companies of yours that you hire out is not doing their job. They're missing their deadlines. The quality of their product is bad. What are you most likely going to say to them? Aren't you going to say exactly what Paul says certain people said in the church in Corinth? I don't need you. We're done. Clean out your desk. You're fired. You know, thank you, but no thank you. So often, many Christians in the church today, just like in the Christians in Corinth, treat their ministry as like as if it's business to build their personal brand, their personal name, their personal empire, instead of seeing their ministry as a fulfillment of obligation to family. And as a result, people who operate that way, how are they going to see people who serve alongside them in ministry? They're probably going to say, hey, you're my employee. You're going to make me look good. You better make sure you don't hinder my ability to run this ministry well, right? Or how are they going to see other Christians in their church who run other ministries? As their competitors, right? As if they're also going to utilize the same shared resources you need to run your ministry. And so you don't want them to necessarily have access as much as you do, or you don't want to have as close, you don't want them to have as close proximity to the pastor who has his ear and therefore can get their way, right? A spirit of competition rather than a spirit of family love pervades a church when people think like this. And let me ask you, what do you think that does to the well-being and the health of the church? Probably not so good, right? Why do you think there's so many church splits, so many church fights, so many church infighting going on in the world today? It's because of this very issue. The church members are driven by a spirit of competition where it's all about making a name for themselves through their ministry rather than seeking to love each other as a family in their ministries. Case in point, a few years ago, I read this article about this pastor who recently got hired at a church after the founding pastor passed away the year before. And the founding pastor, I mean, he was beloved. He grew the church to thousands, and he was pastoring for 45 years. And this young pastor comes and gets hired. And for the first four years, he does nothing. He doesn't, you know, rock the boat. He doesn't, you know, do anything different. He keeps things status quo just so that he can build trust with the congregation. And then year five rolls around, and he thinks, you know what? I think I've been here long enough. Half a decade, I think, is long enough for people to trust me and to believe God has called me to be their pastor. So I think now it's ready to take some changes that I feel God is calling the church to make. And so he went and proceeded to do some changes. What was the first thing he changed? He got rid of the church organ. He thought that was something that was so needed. He needed to get rid of this antiquated musical instrument that no one really cares about. And he also got rid of the various ministries associated with it, such as the church choir, right? The annual Christmas concert the church did and the various musical ministries that provided to the surrounding community. But guess who was in charge of the organ ministry? The founding pastor's daughter. Yeah. And when she heard that this young whippersnapper of a pastor was going to take away the ministry that her daddy crafted for her so she could showcase and display what an amazing musician she is. Sorry, I'm going to so crazy up here, right? I'm just empathizing with her right now, right? She wasn't going to have it. And so she petitioned, she protested, trying to get the pastor fired. It got so bad that cops were called. Local uh, news agencies did multiple reports on them. Now, can you imagine? If you're a member of this church, you've been trying for years to invite your non-Christian friend, neighbor, coworker to come to your church to hear the gospel, and then they tell you, yeah, it's a pass for me. Because yeah, last night, I saw the evening news about what's going on in your church, and so I don't think me and Jesus are ready to have an introduction right now. Can you imagine how discouraged you must be in that kind of a situation? But that is what happens when church members are driven to run their ministry with a spirit of competitiveness rather than the spirit of family love. 
right? You end up with a church that is very toxic, unhealthy, and divided, right? So there you have it. The two things, the two forces that are required to have the ministries of the church be good and not bad for the church. You need to be united around Christ and Christ alone, and you need to have a spirit of family love. So here's the question. How do we make sure that these forces drive our ministries? Well, this leads me to my final point. The originating source of the gospel. Read again with me verse 22 and 23. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Here Paul tells us the originating source to the forces that make our ministries good and a blessing. Right? And at first it's a little confusing because he points to, Paul points to ministries and members of those ministries that on the surface look unimportant, unimpressive, insignificant, right? And furthermore, Paul says that when a church routinely and regularly recognizes, acknowledges, and appreciates these seemingly unimpressive ministries, that practically exposes the church to the things that are needed, unity around Christ, love for us family, that causes the ministry of the church to be so wonderful. How do you explain that? Well, let me try. We live in a world that says The more something is highly spoken of, the more something is highly seen, the more important, the more valuable it is. This is why we go see the movies that everyone says we should watch. This is why we go to the restaurants where we see lines of people lining up to get in and dine, right? Our culture says that if you want to identify what is really worthwhile, what is really valuable, what is really important, look to the things that are highly spoken of and highly seen. But the Bible tells us that's not how our God operates, especially when it comes to people. Because the kinds of people that God is drawn to and attracted to are the very kinds that the world says are unimportant, insignificant, and, and like not worthwhile. Take a listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26. It reads, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring them to nothing what the world considers important. Notice, Paul says, God uses the useless and he empowers the powerless to do his great work of the gospel. And the question is why? Why does God seem to single out those kinds of unimpressive ministries to do his most impressive work? Because to make the obvious super clear, that whatever good things that come out of these unimpressive ministries, whatever gain, whatever graces emerge, is clearly because of God and God alone, right? Hold on to that thought as I remind you why Paul says we need to, as a church, constantly acknowledge and appreciate those seemingly unimpressive, uh, unaware ministries. The more we appreciate those seemingly insignificant ministries, the more it reminds us of who should get the full credit and who should get the full responsibility of all the blessings that come out of all the ministries. You see, it's so easy to take the high-profile ministries of the church, right, that everyone thinks is cool, sexy, that everyone wants to serve on, and we put all the credit and responsibility on the person leading those ministries, right? They're the ones who make it happen. That is why that ministry is so cool, because that person is so amazing. This is why we have celebrity pastors. This is why we have worship leaders who dress so cool and spike their hair so nicely, right? Because we think that they're the ones responsible that make these ministries so amazing, right? But God says that's not how we should see anyone or any ministry, 
right? And the way that we make sure we don't do that is when we as a church constantly notice and appreciate those seemingly unimpressive, unsexy ministries. Why? Because it reminds us of the most important work that God did when he did it in a form that was unimpressive, unattractive, and unimpressive as Jesus Christ. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says God, the eternal son, came into the world as a human being. Why? So he could suffer the full penalty and pay the full punishment for your sins and my sins on the cross. So that if you turn away from your sins and make him your Lord and Savior, not only do you have the hope of your forgiveness of sins, not only do you have the hope of eternal life, not only do you have the hope of changing for the better because you have the power of the spirit in you, but you all also have the assurance that you are loved, you are affirmed, you are acknowledged to the same degree that God the Father has towards the eternal Son. Again, the gospel says you are just as loved, just as accepted, just as embraced by the Father as he embraces the Son. Okay? And when you understand that, then you get changed by it. To the point where what? You love God. More than anything, more than anyone. You love God more than your ethnicity. You love God more than your church organ. You love God more than your passion for evangelism. You love God more than your stage of life. You love God more than your need to be part of a community where everyone looks like you, dresses like you, is the same age as you, right? You love God more than anything and anyone to the point when you come across someone who is like that, you feel so connected to them, it doesn't even matter if you have shared no, nothing else in common with them. You feel so close to someone because they share the most important value that you have of all, which is Christ and Christ alone. Don't you see? It is only in the gospel that we are able to be exposed to the forces that make our ministries, that drive our ministry to be a blessing, not a curse, to be good, not evil. Okay? The gospel is how we get back to a church where the ministries are vibrant and healthy. Do you get that? I hope you do. Because now I want to end my message by addressing those of you who call NCF our home. Because I feel that this message really pushed me to challenge some of you guys that I think you guys need to be challenged by. First, those of you who serve in our various ministries, let me just say thank you. Thank you. As one of your pastors, I got to tell you, you are such a crucial, vital component to why this church is able to be what it is for so many people, okay? You giving your time, you giving your energy, you giving your blood, sweat, and tears so that this ministry could grow and thrive is really what brings glory to God. Amen. I firmly believe that. But with that said, I want to challenge you to ask yourselves, what has been the thing, what have been the driving forces that have motivated you to do what you do at our church, right? Is it really driven by spirit to love each other as family? Is it because you are united with the rest of us because you love Christ, want to obey Christ, and you want to serve Christ? Ask yourself, what are the driving forces that inspire and motivate you to serve the way that you do? Right? The second group of people that I want to address are those of you who are part of our church and you're even members of this body and you have not done anything for a year, Two years, three years, four years, five years. Some of you here call NCF your home and you have not done anything in the form of service. Now I know there might be some legitimate reasons to why, but I have to wonder, could it be that your inactivity is a reflection of your improper view of how you see us as a community? Do you see us as catering to you 
as if we provide a spiritual good and service to you? Or do you see it for what God says it should be, that we are your family, right? Ask yourself that question as you ponder why you have not lifted one finger but only warmed the seats in this room. Because I think that's something that maybe God is calling you to seriously consider. The third group of people I want to end with are those of you who serve in those ministries that for all intents and purposes, no one really wants to volunteer in, nobody seems to care about, no one seems to have much interest in because quite honestly, your ministry is not sexy enough for them. And you might be discouraged because Everyone loves praise team. Everyone loves, you know, all the other, like, beacon, where you get to go out and feel good about yourself helping. But what about media? What about welcoming? What about children's? Eh, I don't think I'm called pastor. I want to address those of you who serve in these ministries. We need you. You know why? Not only because you provide a vital service where God does great things. Have you seen how big our children's ministry is? But your ministry better than even my ministry of preaching to you now, showcases the gospel. You reenact the gospel where you unleash the power of God in an appearance that seems so unappealing, so unattractive, just like God did the most important work of all in an appearance that seems so unimpressive, so unattractive to the world. You, more than anything else, showcase and reenacts the powerful ministry of God that brought salvation to the world. So I want you to be dignified. I want you to be exalted right now because what you do is irreplaceable. So be encouraged and do not falter in your faithful work and continue to be proud of saying that what I do is a privilege and for you to want to serve is a privilege to you. I'm not going to beg for you to do something that I am honored to be able to do for God. In fact, as a congregation, can we right now acknowledge and give thanks to these ministries that seem so unrecognized and unattractive. Let's give a clap offering to these people. You guys are vital to this ministry, and I thank God for every one of you. And I hope I will not be the only one who does that on any given Sunday. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we think about today's message, as well as the things that we are driven to do, God, I pray that when it comes to our ministries to the church, that we would recognize that this is something that is non-negotiable to you. God, you've called us to serve you. You've called us to create ministries because you have entrusted us with your gifts, your spiritual gifts. And we know that we're going to have to answer before you on whether or not we've been faithful with the things that you have stewarded to us. Father, forgive us for our negligence. Forgive us if we've just essentially buried these gifts that you've given to us, not caring for the people around us. Father, shape our hearts so that we would think differently. Help us to see that this community is our family. And the thing that brings us together is not our race, it's not our stage of life, it's not our interest, it's not our passion, but it's our core commitment to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, may that always be and only be the thing that brings us together. May NCF be known as the church that is united around Christ and Christ alone and his gospel. And we pray God, that that would always be the banner of which we are identified with to those outside of us. God, we pray that this church would be known by many things, most importantly, by the ministries that bring life and health to the body that therefore sends a powerful testimony to a world that is in need of you. God, help us to live that out. 
for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.